Well, I shared this week uh, in our e-newsletter uh, about uh, a young man who plays in the Golden State Warriors uh, in 104 total games, 82 regular season and 22 playoff games, 48 minutes each. He played a total of 66 minutes in 104 games times 48. All you math majors can figure that out. Uh, lots of minutes. And yet, he has a world championship ring trophy privilege. And he didn't do much. When I was a kid, my dad, my stepdad played on a competitive softball team and it was for Continental Airlines, uh, which was awesome, uh, because we actually got to go all over the place and play in tournaments. We went to Hawaii one time and played in a tournament there, and I, 10-year-old David, got the MVP for the team. I didn't play in one inning. I didn't go to bat one time, but what I did do is run along the outfield fence and shag all the home run balls. And I got the MVP trophy. They won the tournament. We have all been there where you're a part of a team, uh, you're in the band or your district or your region uh, of your company, uh, broke a record, had great sales, won a big contract, did something, and you had zero to do with it. But you get to celebrate with everyone. We call that the we won mentality. All of you that love college or professional football or any sports and didn't play, that's you every Saturday screaming at the TV when your team wins. We won. And yet you had nothing to do with it. That, that's kind of where we find the nation of Israel right now. They're, they're in this great place of prosperity uh, in the book of Hosea. If I didn't say this earlier, I don't think I did. We're going to be in Hosea 10 today. We're going to skip a few chapters because Hosea, like the minor, all the minor prophets, is uh, punch to the face after punch to the face uh, of your sin uh, and a constant reminder that you're sinful, you're bad, you're horrible, you're terrible. Oh, by the way, God is great and he's going to save you. But let me remind you again, you're terrible. So we're going to skip a few of those chapters for your sake and mine. But, but you, they, they've, they're in this state of prosperity, and they've forgotten all about God. They've forgotten who led them to victory, who, who helped them get to this point of, of prosperity and peace. And, and this chapter that we're going to look at, Hosea 10, uh, like some of the previous passages is difficult. It's hard. It, it's very direct. It's not really PG-13 this week, so you'll get a break from that. But it's a challenging passage because the part we're going to read deals with kind of three interesting subjects. It talks about agricultural and kind of compares the nation of Israel to a vine. And then God turns his attention to their leadership and their vision and where they're going and where they, how they're supposed to get there and how they think they should get there. And then he talks about their worship, their religious activity. And so if you've gotten your Bible, let's look at how God shines a spotlight on sin 
And the reason why God shines a spotlight on sin is that so we would see all the more clearly his relentless, unconditional, everlasting love. That despite our frailty, despite our rebellion, despite our rejection of him, he continues to love us. And he shows us his love throughout history. And so in Hosea 10, I want you to look at the first two verses. It says this, Israel is a luxuriant vine. What a word, luxuriant. That yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Hosea, right off the bat, out of God's mind to Hosea's lips, Israel is this amazing, fruitful, prosperous vine. He compares it to this vine that's luxuriant, that's, that's wonderful, that's beautiful, that's amazing, that, that is producing fruit. I, I've shared before how I lament that last year in the freeze, uh, we lost our Meyer lemon tree. It died, and, and it used to, I, I couldn't give enough lemons away. It was producing so much. We have one of our church members who lives down the street from me, the Jarvises, and, and they had one too, and he would come over and try to give me his lemons. Like, I, let me give you my lemons. So it was this, like, so fruitful and prosperous, and then it died. That, that's what God says about Israel, that, that you're fruitful and prosperous, but a day is coming when you'll be toppled, when you'll be destroyed, because your heart is deceitful. You look great on the outside. You, you look good in front of everyone, but on the inside, your heart is deceitful. It's impure. It's divided. You say one thing and you do another. You, you look this way on, on, for them, Saturdays, for us, Sundays, and you live very differently the rest of the week. And the more and more they prospered, the more and more they walked away from the Lord. They deceived themselves into thinking that their success, their vibrance, their prosperity was all because of them. When in fact they were practicing idolatry. Worshiping themselves and these false prophets. You, you see it often with, with people who are famous, who, who come up from kind of humble roots, whether it be an athlete who, who had a strong faith background and then money and fame hit and they sort of take a turn, or, or a celebrity, an actor, actress, where you see it most in singers. Because how many popular singers today do you, do you hear, you know, when I started singing in my church, that's their, that's their origin story is faith background, and then all of a sudden they're the greatest thing since sliced bread and they've forgotten. Prosperity has a tendency to cloud our judgment and focus the attention on ourselves. And Hosea is speaking against the nation of Israel because they've forgotten who brought them prosperity. 
This passage reminds me of what Jesus said in, in John 15. He said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me, that means dwell, live, reside, camp out, live there in the presence of Jesus with him. Whoever does that, whoever abides in him and I in him, he bears much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do some. No, you can do nothing. That was a test. You can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. We, we pretend like we can do a lot. And that's what the nation of Israel was experiencing in this moment. They thought they could do a lot. And they didn't need God. Because they, were prosper they had prosperity. They were at peace. And he speaks to them directly and says, no, your hearts are false. You're deceiving yourselves. And, and if that weren't enough just to say, oh, hey, by the way, you're terrible people, even though you look good, he keeps going. Look at verse 3. He says, for now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. That's a bad statement to make. And a king, what could he do for us? Like, we're just fine on our own. They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as a tribute to the great king. This is an allusion to what's going to happen, how the ark is going to go away from them. It's going to be taken. They're, they're, the thing they cling to, they love, is going to be carried away. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. It's poetic language to help the nation of Israel realize that they think they know what they want in terms of vision and leadership. That they think they, they want nobody to lead them. They want to lead themselves. But what happens when they lead themselves is they become like poisonous weeds. That's what he says there. Poisonous weeds. And, and what they had been doing is bringing lawsuits against each other, complaining about one another. I know that never happens in church. That they're bringing lawsuits. They're, they're taking a, a group of people who are called as the chosen people of God. And they're bringing lawsuits against one another, taking each other to court, picking a fight. And what they don't realize is that one day... There's going to be this other king, an Assyrian king. And, and Hosea used a play on words here uh, when he talks about that Assyrian king. He, he kind of nicknames him, literally, this is the translation, Pick, P-I-C-K, Quarrel. The king who wants to pick a fight is going to destroy them. He's going to pick a fight with Israel and he's going to win. And he's going to take their most sacred items and he's going to destroy them. Because they think they know best. They've lost sight of what they're called to be, who they're called to be. 
as the people of God. And they say, God, we got this. We don't need your leadership. We, we don't need anyone. We, we know better. And God says, you'll be carried off by the bully king. And if you don't see this necessarily in the life of the church, it's very evident in the business world. Think about companies like Radio Shack. Some of you down here don't even know them. Who, who was like the king of like anything electronics. And then they lost sight of where they were supposed to go and their company just destroyed. The ever infamous MySpace that was the king of social media in the early days. And they started to make it harder and harder and harder for their people to engage with one another. And then Facebook came on the scene and MySpace, for whatever reason, then took a hard turn to music and they just hit the tank. And now Facebook is king. Or Blackberry. Not the fruit, but the telephone company, the mobile phone company. How in the world do you fall apart when you have a government contract? Every government employee carried a Blackberry for a season. Like it was the phone to have. Because you don't stay true to your vision. You don't follow the right thing. There's a modern day example of that actually happening right now. There's a, it's actually a TV show now, crazy enough. There's a company called WeWork. And in 2019, they were worth $47 billion with a B. They're a company that helped find a sort of rental space, office space for startups, entrepreneurs. It was kind of cutting edge stuff. $47 billion in January of 2019. By October of 2019, right before it was supposed to go public, the IPO, initial public offering, it was going to go public, be a, a publicly traded company. Its value was $10 billion. For all you math majors, that's a $37 billion loss in about eight months. And the reason why it lost so much money is really two reasons. One, their CEO, Adam Newman, uh, was a crazy man. The private airplane that he had had to be decommissioned because he smoked marijuana in it so much. It contaminated the cabin and the airplane had to be decommissioned. Their office space, don't celebrate this, at their office, their corporate headquarters, there was free beer all day long. His wife had him fire some executives because she didn't like their energy in a meeting. One meeting didn't like their energy. I don't know how you, maybe she has a meter. <laughs> Test that. But what happened was he got distracted by all the fun stuff of being a leader. And he failed to stay true to the vision of his company that made it worth $47 billion. The company went public, kicked him out, gave him a truckload of money to do so, as they all do. And it got 
swallowed up by an investment group. Another king came in and swallowed up the company. The nation of Israel, that's what was going to happen to them. Because of their sin and their rebellion, their, their refusal to follow out the call of being the people of God. They're too busy promoting themselves. Too busy saying, look what we, how good we are. Too busy fighting amongst themselves. Too busy distracted from the vision that God had given them. And to top it all off, they were worshiping false gods. Look at verse 8. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us. And to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, Lord's going to do what he wants to do when he does it. I will discipline them, and the nation shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. In the end, their altars are going to be destroyed. The, the worship that they claim to have, this sort of double-minded and this divided heart that they have is going to be destroyed, and those places will be wiped away. Their false worship will be gone. They, they've been playing the game. They've been pretending to worship for all these years. They've been pretending to be spiritually minded. They've been pretending to, to be people of holiness because they look good on the outside. They can recite the Torah. They, they know it, but, but their lives are exactly opposite of that. And when they worship, they worship false gods. And so God's going to destroy those places of worship. And this double iniquity, he talks about their double sin, is their own idolatry and their reliance on these foreign kings. Oh, it's okay, the Assyrian king will take care of us. We don't need our own king. I don't know of any country that wants someone else to rule over them. We have that story playing out in modern day worldwide movements. And so today, as we, as we think about this passage that doesn't talk about prostitution at all today, I, I want to ask three questions of us as we think about who we are as a people. How does this story in the nation of Israel's history, how does it apply to 21st century Church of Jesus Christ? And so I just want to ask you three questions. These are, not, these are rhetorical for you to think about. Who gets the credit for your success? And immediately, because we're in church, you want to say God does. And you'd be a liar. Because so would I. Because that's true sometimes. God sometimes gets the credit for my success. Some of the time, I get credit for my success. 
And I'll be glad to tell you. And you'd be glad to tell me or one of your friends or your family members. Sometimes somebody else gets the credit for my success. Because I, particularly in my position here, I get the credit and the blame for everything. Thank you, the people that really know. But who gets the credit for your success? Who, as you think about your life, who do you thank? Who do you trust in? And I don't mean success like you got a great job or you made an A or whatever. I mean that the, the life that you live in suburban Houston, who gets credit for that? Who gets credit that you had family probably that connected you to Jesus? Or you had a friend that drew you in? Who gets that credit? Because the nation of Israel had forgotten all that God had done for them. And I would argue that we forget sometimes what all God has done for us. And so who gets the credit for your success? And then who has your allegiance? Again, we'd say, oh, Jesus, which would be true part of the time. Because I know some of you, your allegiance is to your kids. In the first service, I said your allegiance was to your grandkids. It's a different deal. And that's true. Sometimes your allegiance is to your friends the people that are close to you, your allegiances to your spouse or your parents or to a coach or to your boss at work, that's your allegiance. And sometimes your allegiance is to the Lord. I wonder how we shift that and say, Lord, I, I'm trusting in you in all ways. You are my king. As I look to you, I want to be like what Jesus said in John 4 to the woman at the well. I'm looking for worshipers, true worshipers, who will worship in spirit and truth. I want to be a person devoted to, to living a life full of the spirit. And the only way that happens is if I surrender my life to Jesus every moment, every day, to trust in the spirit of God, to live in me and through me. And I want to live a life of truth. Because my allegiance is to the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally, does your worship match your lifestyle? Does your worship match your lifestyle? We all do pretty good in here. We, we sing, or at least most of us sing. We might raise our hands. We might even really contemplate the, the language of the songs, the, the meaning of the words on the page here as we look at the Scripture, and it, and it might hit us. As we look at, at what God's Word says about who we are and who He is, but then how does that translate? How does that translate to my lifestyle? Does what I sing and do and listen and say in this context, does it translate beyond, or am I like a poisonous weed? 
Or am I a person who lives a life, as Romans says, by the mercy of God, I'm a living sacrifice. I'm a living sacrifice. Worshiping all the time. And I've put away, Ephesians is a, is a great book. I've put away all the nonsense of the world. Malice and anger, idolatry, witchcraft, sexual immorality, lying, stealing, malice in my heart. I put all that away so I can be a living sacrifice. Does your worship match your lifestyle? I pray it does. I pray that your allegiance is to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that when great things happen to you, when you get to experience blessing, that you celebrate the goodness of God in that. That's my prayer for us. Because when we don't, when we don't do those things, we shine a bright light on our sin. And if that were the end of the story, we'd all be hopeless. But that's not the end of the story. The story continues that even though we were sinners, even though we don't give God our allegiance, even though our worship and our lifestyles crisscross and don't intersect, that didn't make sense. Even though, because when you crisscross, you do intersect. I do know math. When we don't give our allegiance to the Lord, when we don't give him success, when our worship and our lifestyle contradict, we damage the name of Jesus. The very reason we're gathered here today is to celebrate his name, to, to rejoice in the fact that I'm no longer dead in my sin that I'm alive in Christ because he shed his blood on the cross for me. He died for me. That's why we remember. That's why we take the Lord's Supper so that we can remember the great sacrifice, the relentless love of God that, that shows us who he is and he poured himself out for us that we might have life, that we might be forgiven, that we might experience hope, that we would live with purpose it would be people of love and grace. We'd be tender. That we wouldn't be like the rest of the world that hates each other. No, we'd bring goodness. That's why we gather today to remember.